Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. James Esposito, and this is New Books in History. I just spoke with historian Kelly Watson about her new book, Insatiable Appetites, Imperial Encounters with Cannibals in the North Atlantic World. This book was released by New York University Press in 2015. Watson's book shows how the long-standing cannibal myth was employed to justify the European imperial project in the New World. Fear of cannibalism was mobilized by early explorers, clergy, and colonial officials to fashion a new hierarchy of difference based on a masculine, civilizing narrative which framed natives as savage and effeminate objects of European colonial policy. It was a pleasure to talk to Kelly, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Today I'm sitting down with the historian Kelly Watson about her book, Insatiable Appetites, Imperial Encounters with Cannibals in the North Atlantic World. Kelly, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Um, you know, I've, I've been uh, looking forward to talking to you about your book for a while now. Before we start with the book, let's, let's talk about why you became a historian and, and a little bit about your background, as is um, traditional new books. We do talk about um, authors' backgrounds a bit. Sure. What got you into history? Well, as a child, I, I grew up desiring to be an archaeologist. It was all I ever wanted to do, you know, the Indiana Jones kind of vision of archaeology. And then um, I worked in a lab, an archaeological lab, for a couple of years and realized I would be very bad at it. And I would not, <laughs> in fact, make a good archaeologist. And I would hate it. So I was in college at the time, my undergrad institution in Baltimore. And um I sort of came to the realization that, well, what I like is the history, but what I don't like is, you know, the fieldwork part. Mm. So it really transitioned from, all right, what can I do with the kind of desire for learning that I have, but this practical job path that is no longer something that I'm going to do. So um, I started an undergraduate as an ancient studies major, so majoring in Mm. specializing in Roman history. And uh, I took a number of American studies classes, so I ended up double majoring in ancient studies and American studies, so okay. two rather sort of disparate fields in some ways. So I graduated from undergrad, and I still didn't really know what I wanted. I knew what I liked learning about, um, and I worked for a couple of years doing just kind of office work at a, at a real estate development corporation. And then it made me realize that what I really cared about and what I wanted to do. Um, so then I went back to graduate school. My degrees are actually in American studies, so I, I knew that I wanted to do historical American studies work. And I think the tension for me was always, do I want to do sort of cultural studies or I want to do history? And the longer that I was in my American studies program, the more I realized sort of that my interests in some ways were very different than the rest of my cohort in American studies who were much more interested in, in media centered work and modern centered work. And so I, in graduate school, worked closely with historians on my committee, on my dissertation, and really kind of committed myself to finally seeing how I could put all of those threads of interest together from Rome to, Hmm. you know, modern American culture and figure out some way to make all that work. And and history really gave me the ability to do that in the way that I thought was meaningful 
Um, sort of how I came to the discipline, I guess, in a sense. Okay. Why um, early modern uh, America rather than, you know, uh, like the ancient world or, or whatever, <laughs> <Right>. you know? <laughs> well, it, there are threads of that in there the book are. that it's amazing. Yeah. Pliny and Herodotus show up in the first chapter, and I'm like, hmm, this is interesting. This this is um, uh, it was unexpected in a you know Atlantic world piece, and I really enjoyed that aspect yeah. of the book. I mean, in some ways, it fulfills that undergraduate dream of, can I do ancient studies and American studies and put them together in some way? So let me do that. Um, so part of what interests me about the early modern period is that it's this moment of transition from kind of classical modes of thinking, medieval modes of thinking into a modern kind of world. So it lets me bring forward all of those threads that I'm interested in, in a moment when they're all sort of coalescing and in pushing against one another. And I mean, Columbus represents that a great deal. He has these very medieval ideas about sinocephali and dog-headed people and, and all of these things. But at the same time, the sort of modern ideal of exploration, discovery, and conquest in a very imperialist sense that isn't that medieval moment. So I'm really interested in kind of those transitions and periods of thought, and I think that the early modern Atlantic world is really a crucible for that. Okay. Um, that's very interesting. That that comes out in, in the uh, the book as well, that, that you, you're really interested in this cleavage between sort of ancient and medieval thought about sort of the cannibal other and then how that sort of translates into a more early modern imperial sort of, you know, North American empire kind right. of uh, right. section. Why cannibals? Yeah. <laughs> I've been wanting to ask you this yeah. question for like two weeks. Yeah, I get asked this question all the time. And I used to I used to try to want to come up with a good answer. And, and it was actually not that long ago that I kind of finally got it for myself. It had been a project I've been working on for the better part of a decade. Um and I started working on it right when I started my master's program. I took a, a Native American history course, so Native America to 1800 in the history department. And um, we read parts of the Jesuit relations. We read some of those Jesuit accounts of Iroquois cannibalism. And I was just really fascinated with the, the both fascination and repulsion that the Jesuits it sort of exhibit in their writings about Iroquois practices. They describe them in gory detail, yet they're so repulsed. And it just kind of started from there. But then when I was really thinking about it a couple of weeks ago, why this? Um, I don't it's a part that mostly got caught from the end of the book. But I used to have a, a little longer explanation of I don't know if you remember in the sort of 1980s, and 1990s, there was a lot of conversation about Kuru, about the disease that affected people in Papua New Guinea, where they were suspected of eating corpses as part of a a ritual of um, consumption of the dead. And they were getting a form of, of Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, that's bovine spongiform encephalopathy. And um, I remember hearing all about this because the one of the lead researchers on that project, Carlton Gadzicek, lived in my hometown. And he was a Nobel Prize winning medical anthropologist. And he'd adopted many, many children from Papua New Guinea, Micronesia, Melanesia, and these kids went to my high school, and I grew up in the, in Appalachian, Western Maryland, so this was a, you know, you don't get a lot of Nobel Prize winning scientists in Appalachian, Western Maryland, and right, I think my senior year of high school, he was arrested for child molestation, oh, wow. and um, he was brought forward on charges, and he was, um, he eventually um, sought a plea deal, and served a term, and then lived out the rest of his life, I think, in Norway. Um, and 
the accusations were that he had molested many of the children that he had adopted. Um, and in his diaries, he admits to it. And there's this tension between his sexual desire of a group of people and the can- and cannibalism in a way that I hadn't really thought about because Gadgetek kind of justified his acts by saying, well, in their culture, this was normal. This was okay. This was a practice they did. So why can't I do these things? And his sort of inability to think about cultural context and maybe that would be acceptable, perhaps, perhaps not in Papua New Guinea, but when you bring children to Western Maryland, right, the transference sure. of culture. And so in some ways, his justification of sex acts with young men in particular had a lot to do with their sort of status as primitives as he saw it, which he thought was a good thing, right, that the modern world had these serious problems and there was something great about this life. But this still, this link between sex and cannibalism, even in the 1990s, was still something that was kind of circulating. They're cannibals, so their sort of sexual desires are are different, and you don't have to treat them the same as you would someone who isn't a cannibal or someone who has the same level of humanity that you do. Yeah, no, that, that's interesting. The the uh, I, I was thinking uh, in this book that since it's early modern text, you don't necessarily talk about uh, anthropology's sort of roots in empire right. explicitly. It's sort of kind of coming there. You talk um, several times about, oh, well, in the 19th century, sort of um, the identification of difference is sort of medicalized and professionalized. But it's sort of like embryonic at this time. Right. But I think it's interesting that what you said, like, it, that sounds like like almost a quasi-imperialism. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of fascinating work out there about Gadgetek and some interesting documentaries that are worth watching. Um, but it was sort of a a moment for me of realization of coalescing of all these threads of my life and what brought me to this project it wasn't just, you know, oh, I want to write about something that people will remember, but that there's these sort of meaningful moments in my life that have have brought me to that. Okay. And I also, no. you know, I'm a... I'm a vegetarian, and everyone thinks. Oh. <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, so, as a vegetarian, I think I'm also fascinated with um, where we draw lines between what food is gross and what food isn't gross. Right? Yeah. People who eat meat, there's certain animals like, oh, I would never eat a dog or a horse, but in many societies, that's perfectly normal. So, we sure. draw these kinds of lines about what is acceptable and what isn't, and I've always kind of found that fascinating. Uh, yeah, that kind of comes out in the introduction when you're talking about. What what's cannibal like? What, how do we define cannibalism? Right. Because for so long, uh, even in Europe, people ate other people's remains for medical right. uses, or or um, I think uh, you mentioned that in in Britain in the 18th century they prescribed uh, human blood as a cure for epilepsy. Right. Yeah. Sounds very 18th century. <laughs> right. Um, so these things sort of happen. I, I know, like uh, our listeners might be familiar with mummy brown, the kind of uh, paint that was made of ground up mummies, those kinds of things. So yeah, you, you do talk about that, and that does sort of come from a perspective of someone that I was thinking, hmm, does she eat meat? Like, like you think about these sort of distinctions, um, the cultural relativism right. uh, inherent in in these these types of things. Uh, when I was talking to um, some of my friends about what book I was uh, was interviewing for this week. Everyone was interested in the cannibals. Everyone, no one's ever interested <laughs> except for cannibals. So, um, I think you're going to get a lot of attention for your for you know fantastic book. Excellent, thank you. And uh, interestingly enough, I, it was in the news a couple days ago um, where you 
but you were talking about uh, cannibalism as survival in sort of European history, and it, it gets these it gets this kind of exception. Mm-hmm. You know, cannibalism is wrong, and it, and it's sort of identified with um, savagery, except when it's in sort of dire mm-hmm. right. consequences or situation. Um, and I was just reading in the news it, on Google, they were saying that they finally conclusive, conclusively identified cannibalism at Jamestown. Right. And that's that's the very beginning of uh, you know right. uh, Anglophone America right there. So yeah, I, I have I have a lot of thoughts about that, which I won't drone on about for, for too long. Um, <laughs> but yeah, talk talk a little um, bit about it. that's, that's yeah. something like people. Uh, not last summer, but the summer before, um, I presented a conference in um, Southampton uh, at a conference on cannibalism in the early modern Atlantic, and the head archaeologist of the uh, colonial of the Jamestown project. Presented. And so he was talking about the research that, that proved um, cannibalism amongst the early Jamestown settlers during the starving time of 1609-1610. So I had an opportunity to talk with them, and, and we put together a volume from this conference that I'll have an essay in. And one of the things that I think is most interesting is the work that they did. It's not that I necessarily have any qualms with that. It's the amount of focus that this one act has received and the amount of money and time that we have devoted to proving or disproving this one thing when lots of accusations against people of color are just sort of taken for granted with much sure. spottier evidence. The, the textual evidence of Jamestown cannibalism was contradictory and certainly problematic, but we have far more of it, even in its contradictory nature, than we have for other acts of cannibalism. So what I think is interesting is why this is such a big deal. Right. Why this is is such big news. And it's because Jamestown is this foundational story of America. And so you can spin it as, well, these people were willing to do anything to survive. Right. A plucky American kind of narrative or right. The way that we don't tend to think about it is as a descent into savagery. Mm-hmm. Right. And or we don't think about it as pragmatism. Um, I don't know this, the the length that people go to either disprove or prove when. Anglo-Americans ate people, I think, reveal a lot about the way that we still think about cannibalism and who are cannibals and who are not. Sure. I think uh, this might be a good time to get, actually get into the book and, and talk about um, uh, chapter one in, in inventing uh, cannibals, sort of an overview of classical and uh, medieval discourses of man-eating. Mm-hmm. And uh, we talked a little bit about that um, before where, uh, you know, you sort of go into the Pliny and Herodotus and... You talk about sort of the way Herodotus saw, uh, you know, non-Greeks and as sort of savage, you know, people living on the edges of, um, you know, Asia or whatever, as those are the people that are, you know, um, eating people ritually and, and Greeks would never do that, except when they did. Right. <laughs> In this kind of like dire circumstances. Right. right. And, and so, I mean, that happens repeatedly, right? This sort of mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an ongoing yeah. theme in the book. The edges of the world are always where the cannibals live. But then there's usually some mention, oh, but... You know, so-and-so did eat somebody, but that's because they were in war and they were starving, and that's different. But those people out there are somehow eating people for fun or for sport, right, whereas we are doing it for something meaningful. Um, And, I mean, you see this all up to the 19th century, right? The edges of, quote-unquote, civilization are where the cannibals live. An act that we do, as the author of, of the tale Right, are different than acts that they do. Does that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that was really interesting, especially in the Pliny, where you're getting to early Christianity mm-hmm. and how 
you know, uh, the sacraments of Christianity do have this sort of semi-cannibalistic right. um, nature. And it's used pretty successfully in plenty to say, wow, okay, this, this is a serious problem. These people are, you know, um, going to destroy our empire or, right. or whatever, you know. Right. They're a threat to civilization from within. When you have mm-hmm. cannibals living at the edges of your society, that's a threat but not an imminent one. But mm. when Christianity starts to sort of crop up and it's still an underground and, and persecuted faith, the idea that Christians are cannibals means that there are people from within who are a severe threat to your civilization. And if you want, want to read the Eucharist in a cannibalistic way, it's not that hard, right? Mm. And there's all sorts of sensationalist literature about the horrible things that Christians did in those rituals, um, all sorts of sex orgies and cannibalistic acts and so it becomes rather than a threat from outside a threat from inside mm-hmm. and then how do you deal with that i mean obviously you deal with it with persecution but when the threat is the uncivilized cannibal is your neighbor it becomes mm-hmm. a very different story than when they are living in the steppes of central asia sure sure uh it, it is it's interesting in the plenty it's there's a sort of aspect that, oh, wow, it's just going to overcome our entire society, and there's not much we can do about this other than, you know, persecute more, and that wasn't particularly helpful. Right, you know? right. All it does is sort of, the, the continued persecution, right, then draws more attention to an act that could really, I mean, the exaggerated way in which Pliny speaks about Christian rituals, obviously not the case, but persecuting, in fact, draws more attention to it. And it becomes more of an issue than it might have been if it just sort of was allowed to fade. And, um, yeah, I mean, Pliny has a lot of complicated ideas about hierarchies of humanity and where humans fit. And for him, I think that the issue is that these people are unquestionably human. They're unquestionably comparable physically to him. And that's very difficult to reconcile when you have someone who has a dog head who eats mm-hmm. other people or dog headed people, then mm-hmm. they're unquestionably other. Yeah, exactly. Could you talk a little bit about sort of the medieval discourses of um, man eating? Because I, I found that uh, even more complicated for me uh, as not a medievalist. Um, but yeah, so I, but you have somewhat of a background in this. So. Yeah, so I mean, the, the first chapter moves very quickly through these kinds of. Mm-hmm. of classical sources and into the medieval sources. And there was a lot that I could have done, but I really focused mostly on travelers' tales because not only is that the sort of most popular kind of pop literature sort of at the time, but it's also what people like Columbus are reading and bringing with them and using to guide their journey in America. I mean, Columbus carries Marco Polo's travels with him. And so these medieval travel narratives are literally shaping how they will see Americans. So you have a lot of popular travel narratives, but also some encyclopedias like Isidore of Seville's um, encyclopedia. Um, but the travel narratives, what is interesting is is this desire to go and find these edges of civilization and interact with these cannibals and this same kind of way that we will see later on of we are both disgusted but sort of perversely attracted to the horrors that exist at the edges of civilization. Um, and so we have St. Brendan, we have um, John Manville, and a lot of these other travelers um, 
who will sort of give us a model for how the earliest accounts will unfold. But then you also have these really interesting moments. Um, I, one of the parts I really like is the part about the, the Crusades, so where you have Christians sure. in the Holy Land consuming others or accusing others of consuming people, and it becomes instead of edges of civilization, but a Christian versus Muslim kind of back and forth slander of which one of us are cannibals, and mm. and also the contemplation of who is it okay to eat? Sure. Is it okay to eat the person that you think is an uncivilized savage, or does that make you somehow uncivilized if you eat someone that you think is an infidel and a danger to your society? By eating them, are you then bringing that contaminant into your community? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is this sort of ongoing uh, theme of contagion mm -hmm. uh, with associated with cannibalism right. that you know uh, that you know people at the edge of the edges of empire. Um, are somehow contaminated from this act, and that you know again in the Crusades, like if, if you're if you're going across that that bridge into into what later becomes you know identified as savage, there's it's very complicated and very uh, uh, difficult to sort of ascertain like what what's a sort of reliable metric of savage at this point. Right. Right, and no one wants to see themselves as savage, right? So the reliable metric just is, what are they doing? That's mm -hmm. different from what we are doing. Yeah, and the theme of contamination definitely comes, continues through, and contamination in a variety of ways. I mean, there are those who literally view sort of eating people as a virus that will spread. Once one of us does it, then we're all going to start doing it. It will spread throughout the community. Or the contamination in terms of, the savagery of the person that you're consuming will infect you and you will become then savage like them. Um, it's only very, I think, briefly mentioned, or it might have actually gotten caught. Um, in the late 19th and early 20th century, um, psychologists quantified this disease called Wendigo psychosis. It was an Algonquin-only, a culturally specific psychological disorder of okay. the insatiable desire to consume human flesh. Um, and so it was this... It was it, 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 the history of it is really fascinating. Um, so Algonquin peoples would become overcome sometimes because they had tasted human flesh and then could not get it out of their mind. Sometimes it's okay. a merely psychological obsession with eating human flesh. And there were sort of ideas about how to treat Wendigo psychosis, why it only affects Algonquin peoples. Um, and so really, even to the 20th century, this sort of contamination idea is there. A Wendigo is a sort of fantastical, a mythical creature um, that, depending on the, the version of the story, is usually a cannibal ice monster that eats your heart. So you <laughs> There's this great, great mythology. I mean, like you talk about this a lot in this sort of discourse of, of cannibalism, but there's this sort of a, a massive mythology that sort of develops around this sort of uh, cannibal taboo, mm -hmm. uh, and it's it, it's just I don't know it's it's crazy it's it's a um, I don't know it's 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 certainly um, compelling compelling to read and and it seems like like as as you say in your book that it becomes a very very powerful um, tool to convince people that imperialism is good right. and and conversion is absolutely necessary and you know if we can just kind of loot and do whatever we need sort of on the, the side, that's fine. But the primary thing is to 
you know, uh, manage people's bodies, make sure they're not, you know, eating other people's right. flesh and convert them to Christianity as soon as humanly possible. Right. Make sure they're using their bodies in the right ways and they understand the difference between us, humanity and other things and which creatures are deserving of, of the proper rituals of death and which creatures can be eaten. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, one of the things that I observed over years of doing this project is once you start looking for cannibalism or thinking about it, you find references to it everywhere in places you don't expect, right? Mm-hmm. When you go to a museum, you won't think about the fact that, oh, this Goya painting, right, the famous painting of, of mm-hmm. Saturn devouring his children, is sure. an image that all of us have likely seen and that we've in fact really encounter on a much more regular basis than we think mentions and references to cannibalism. Every time I talk about the project, especially to those who do more modern work, they ask me if I've seen X movie or this movie or that movie, because it still happens all the time Mm -hmm. in film. And I mean, in the 1970s, there was a whole huge industry in Italy of, you know, exploitative, sexy cannibal women in the jungle kinds of. Sure. Yeah, I was good. I was gonna say if you'd ever seen uh, that that sort of Italian movie Cannibal Holocaust, I have. I actually like, saw it in the theater when it, they did a re-release at the Charles Theater in Baltimore. And I mm-hmm. I saw it there. So yeah, no, I I, I was sort of intermitt- intermittently playing the theme when I was reading it because I was like, oh man, this is like uh, you know being a teenager again, seeing like you know uh, you know late night movies and stuff right. in Philadelphia. Um, but yeah, I mean, let's let's talk about discovering cannibals in, in chapter two. And the sort of the dichotomy between the Carib people and the Arawak, because mm-hmm. for the Spanish, the Arawak becomes sort of like almost savage, angelic savages, and the Caribs are these this sort of bad, bad natives, bad right. Indians that sort of eat people, and and they're and especially uh, for the Caribs, there's this sort of idea that Carib women not only have this this desire to consume human flesh that's insatiable, but the sexual desire that's insatiable and dangerous. Right, that all of their desires are out of control in some way. So the Caribbean context um, really sets the kind of the model for how things will unfold. So Columbus comes, he meets the Arawak, sometimes the Taino, depending on what, what terminology one wants to use, and he meets these people and they become sort of the paradigmatic good Indians. Mm. And the Carib becomes the paradigm of the bad Indian, right? The noble savage, the ignoble savage. And it starts right from the beginning because one of his first encounters with the Arawak is somehow with signs because they don't speak the same language. They tell Columbus over there on that island are some people who are harassing us and killing us and eating us. And you should go over there. How that's communicated with signs, I, I will never understand. But that, <laughs> is a, that is a question, an unanswerable question. So in his second voyage back, he's explicitly coming to meet those Caribs. And Carib and Cannibal become sort of confused and sloppy, and you're never clear if when they say Carib, do they mean man-eaters? When they say Cannibal, are they talking about Carib? And when you have all of these languages circulating and each person is using the term slightly differently, Carib becomes obviously the etymological root of Caribbean, but also the etymological root of Cannibal. So right from the start, the Caribs are Cannibals, Cannibals are Caribs. Um, and it sets up this model of, well, there are the good Indians that will ally with us, and there are the bad Indians who won't. 
And so those that fight back become the cannibals and those that don't fight become the Arawak. And I mean, there's a lot of debate, as I mentioned, about how distinctive these two cultural groups are, exactly where to draw the line, how we can recognize the, the distinctions between the two. And for Columbus, it's right who fights back the most, right? Your ferocity determines whether or not you're a Carib. And for the Arawak, if they treat them with slightly less, you know, ferocious responses, they become the Arawak. Um, and as I mentioned a little later in that chapter, this will literally become part of a Spanish codified law as they mm-hmm. will have a council to decide which islands are occupied by cannibals, which ones aren't, and They've kind of, by that point, just decided cannibal and non-cannibal rather than sticking with Carib and Arawak. Um, mm-hmm. And then those that are determined to be cannibals are those that are allowed to be enslaved without provocation. They don't need to be converted. So those first meetings that Columbus has and the way that he and people like Vespucci begin separating Indians into good and bad resonate for the next couple hundred years of how Europeans will deal with indigenous peoples that they encounter. Um, as a sort of non-early uh, modern person, as as, um, as someone who has, has had a Atlantic world, but not um, so much, I didn't know Verespucci was, um, he's, he's really malevolent. Mm-hmm. He's, he's far more, or, or it, it seems in, in the beginning of the book that he seems far more malevolent than even Columbus. Right. Which is quite an achievement, <laughs> you know, like it's like, okay, <laughs> well, I, I wasn't. Super. Well, I know I knew right. him as a cartographer, but I didn't know he was actually uh, right. I mean, you don't want to attribute, you know, you don't want to do psychohistory and decide right their motivations, but can at least with Columbus recognize that some of this comes out of ignorance and just mm-hmm. he doesn't understand what he encounters, and he doesn't necessarily intend for Indians to die. He doesn't necessarily. I mean, he wants to meet the great Khan. He wants to get riches, and that's what he's there for. And the way he goes about that is taking captives and slaves, and he's not exactly a figure that comes out looking good at the end of it. But he comes out as someone who kind of stumbles his way through what's happening. Whereas Vespucci, at least the presentation he gives of himself, is someone who's much more sure from the start of his intentions, that he has no intentions of seeing Indians as anything other than savage. And I mean, because his accounts are so questionable to begin with, because we can't really definitively prove that he does any of the things that he does and he's never the captain of the ship that he gives himself credit for and and all of these things he comes out as this character who seems really like a charlatan yeah yeah um you also mentioned uh dale's casas as well and i i think it's interesting uh having you know read some of those primary sources i never really thought of his sort of concern for the tano people as sort of coded in um cannibalism Mm -hmm. I never really thought about the Caribs as being sort of these people that are sort of beyond the pale at a certain, you know, um, when you read De Las Casas, what's happening to um, the Tano people is so terrible that you can't even conceive of a worse fate than that. Right. And it's really interesting that, that um, there is in this Spanish, Spanish um, Atlantic world. And Las Casas, I mean, at one point when he's arguing against enslaving um, the Taino, he, one of his suggestions is to replace them with African slaves. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Yeah. 
because Indian lives are worth saving or these Indian lives are worth saving and, and those people's lives are not. He later co- comes to regret that and apologizes and says, OK, that wasn't right either. And he starts to recognize the older he gets that all humans have some kind of innate value. But the Caribs never really come back into that story and they never really return as people that get any kind of vindication. They're always kind of treated as people who aren't deserving of being treated as humans with human dignity and the respect that one should afford, or according to kind of Spanish Catholic theology, that one should afford a potential convert. Sure, exactly, exactly. They're never even afforded that that um, that ability. Um, it's interesting as as we get into chapter three and you talk about Mexican conquest. Uh, it sexuality is so important because. Um, masculinity becomes the sort of primary metric in this system, Um, even more so than in um, the Caribbean. Right. In the Caribbean, um, right, the major sort of issue with sexuality is is that cannibalistic women have all of these voracious appetites, and that includes sex, and they consume bodies both through their overzealous desire for sex and their consumption, and Carib women are seen as equally kind of at fault for all of this and and the, the sort of famous tale of Columbus's shipmate Cuneo who mm-hmm. horrifically rapes a cannibal woman simply because she's a cannibal but when you mm-hmm. get into the conquest of Mexico it's not about the sort of gender roles of the people they encounter so much as it's about shoring up their own masculinity in opposition to the people they encounter mm, exactly exactly yeah, I don't know. So the chapter on Mexico is is really really interesting. It's also this idea this idea of identity and that that when they're there, Spanish identity becomes more and more identified as sort of being a real civilization, mm-hmm. and anything that's that's Aztec is is just completely inferior and must be destroyed. Like not even like you know sort of um, we can learn from them. No. Yeah, yeah, no, they, they, they deliberately destroy all their texts and um, in the midst of this, this sort of violent conversion. And is that because of the, the sort of human sacrifice and, and the things that the, the Spanish claim to have seen? I mean, that's, or is it just part of a sort of a larger imperial project? I think it's both in some ways, because in the Caribbean, they're able to Spain is very easily able to separate, okay, they are uncivilized, we are civilized, because they don't, I mean, they obviously had religion, but the Spanish say they didn't have religion, they don't have permanent homes, or they don't have buildings and governments and empires and all of these things. Then we get to Mexico, both the Maya and the Aztecs possess most of the qualities that Spain said civilization should have. So then they're faced with this, oh, we can no longer just merely justify conquest on the fact that they are uncivilized. So we've got to then move the markers of what civilization means to move the line because they live in permanent cities. I mean, their descriptions of Tenochtitlan are in awe of what an amazing, clean, well-functioning city it is. So then they move the line to, well, they might have some of those things, but they still practice human sacrifice and cannibalism. So no matter what kind of government they might have, that government is rooted in savagery. No matter what kind of civilization they might have, it's rooted in this fundamentally flawed perspective of humanity. And therefore, we can take them over. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very simplified version, but yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, no, that that that's just yeah. No, I, I felt like that chapter was very difficult to read because um, yeah, I don't know. There's something about the Mexican conquest that that is particularly um, haunting. I don't know. Um, did you find like when you wrote the chapter? Did you find that to be difficult, or did did you just try to I don't know. Like, how, how did you approach that chapter? It was, I think, the hardest one to write for me. I mean, it's the one that, you know, that's the one that keeps me awake at night. It's that one for a variety of reasons. When I started writing this as a dissertation a long time ago, it was the first chapter I wrote. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so the first chapter I wrote, I mean, it looks very different than it did then. And I remember turning it into my dissertation chair, and he was like, uh, no, like, you got to make this <laughs> do all these things. Um, and so it, comes out much better for it, and um, some of the other members of my committee were much of their expertise was in Mexico, so mm-hmm. I felt a lot of pressure to make this chapter good, and there's so much written about the conquest of Mexico. There's mm-hmm. so much more of all of the context that I talk about. I think cannibalism and sacrifice and savagery and civilization have been written about in this moment far more, and so I felt a lot of pressure to acknowledge all of that, try to make some new contribution, but I also had to set limits, and I think this was why the struggle with this chapter is there's so much that I have to set some kind of arbitrary limit. And so I chose to focus on firsthand accounts as much as possible because there's a long Spanish historiographical tradition about mm-hmm. writing histories of the conquest. But that would have taken things too far afield. So I tried to focus on those who were there and the observations they're making in the moment and then a little bit about how back in Spain they're thinking about those observations. But it was a challenge, I think, to write because I think it's when Spain is really trying to formulate its views on empire and how their empire will function. So the sources are contradictory. They're not quite sure where they stand. They're they're thinking through the process as they write it. And then I'm Mm -hmm. trying to interpret something that, you know, Cortez is constantly justifying his actions after the fact. Yeah, exactly. Right. So then how do I read something into his letters when he himself isn't really sure where he's going with this. He's just trying sure. to justify what immediately happened. So I decided to scuttle my fleet and con- conquer the Aztecs, even though I wasn't supposed to. Oh, and that's because they're cannibals. Is that mm-hmm. tacked on? Is that <laughs> how do you make sense of that? Mm-hmm. And I think it's much clearer in some of the other contexts that cannibalism was not just something they're using purely as justification, but I mean, the Jesuits are in literal fear of being eaten, whether that's mm-hmm. logical fear or not. Cortez never really expresses that they're afraid for themselves of being consumed in the same way. Yes, yes. Um, and I, and it's interesting. I, I feel like there might be something special with those sources because, like you said, Cortez is, is writing as these events are happening, but he doesn't know what's going to happen. Right. And there are several times where he might get killed or people close to him get killed and stuff. So it, it maybe that sort of contributes to how chaotic it right. is after the fact. Right. And then Diaz is writing 40-ish years later, reflecting back, and he has these very clear political motivations to defend their conquest. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the difficulty with all of these sources is how much is being read back into a moment, how much is exaggeration. And I get asked all the time, so were they cannibals? Did they do it? Mm-hmm. And my students asked me this the other day. And I mean, the answer sure. is, yes. I mean, of course, acts of cannibalism happened. The extent to which they happened is probably nowhere near 
Right? They're not sacrificing 20,000 people a year in Tenochtitlan. That's not happening. But how to figure out where some sort of truth lies in accounts that are so exaggerated and all have these competing political and personal motivations, it, it makes it much more challenging. I mean, that's the, the challenge of any kind of discourse work, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Um, do you just just sort of point away from the text for a second? Do you do you find that that when you talk to your to your undergrads or, or to colleagues and stuff, do you do you find that um, people are still really uncomfortable with with cannibalism as a subject? Um, for my students, for my undergraduates, they tend to, um, well, the ones that are willing, I think, to speak about it tend to be sure. really interested, um, and they want to know, and, and they're like, oh, tell, tell, tell us a gross story, and, and I'm going to be giving a guest lecture um, at a private high school here in, in oh, wow. a couple of weeks to some sophomores, and I was asking the faculty member, so can I put some images on the screen? How is this going to work? <laughs> and she's like, oh, yeah, sophomores love gross images. So I think, especially if we're talking kind of adolescence, there's, there's a fascination with it. But there is still kind of a line that makes them uncomfortable. And that, that's really the thinking through of the ethics of it, right? It's okay to hear a story that's interesting, but when asked to really contemplate, so why is cannibalism wrong? Mm-hmm. What makes this a problem? What, in what circumstances would it be acceptable I think the ethical debate is what makes them most uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And then also talking about sex alongside cannibalism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because that's part, part and parcel to the project. Right. Um, you, you're not only identifying, or Europeans are not only coding uh, cannibalism, um, which, which you make an important distinction. Um, the consumption of human flesh and cannibalism are two different things. When you talk about cannibalism, you're mainly talking about the myth or the the discourse around right. it. You're not actually really talking about the act of it. Right. Um, and it's, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting on how um, cannibalism and sexuality are sort of lumped in this sort of, well, this is sort of beyond the pale of, of European civilization, and therefore it, these people have to be you know, brought back into line. They don't understand what bodies should do in, in a variety of ways. <laughs> and how they should function right. and where they should go and and what you can do with them, what you can't do with them. But it, it's interesting also that at the same time, uh, exploiting human bodies for labor right. uh, is, is totally, <laughs> totally fine. Right. Making, making um, a people property is, you know, basically fine. And on that, the Aztecs and the Spanish would have agreed, right? The Aztecs mm-hmm. had no yeah. particular problem with exploiting and having a tribute-based empire, and, and that makes sense. But, right, I mean, that, that line of, and the famous sort of lines from Montaigne when he's asking in his essay on cannibals, that is the, the sort of thing people remember about early modern cannibalism, when he's kind of questioning how can we criticize these cannibalistic practices of, he's talking about the Tupinumba in Brazil, when we ourselves do these terrible things, these executions, right, the Inquisition, and mm-hmm. who is really more savage than whom, and who are we to judge what they're doing as beyond the pale when they have rational reasons for it. How can the Spanish criticize Aztec sacrifice when they are letting loose their dogs on, you know, groups of villagers and letting their dogs consume them? Is there mm-hmm. something different there? Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, maybe this might be a good point to talk about sort of the North American uh, aspect and, and first so that the Jesuits are super interesting. Mm-hmm. 
because um, it, in the book you're t- you talk about how they're they're going to North America and they're in these sort of hostile cold climates, and they use it as sort of a, a trial and martyrdom. Like that that is the reason why they're there. Well, they're they're there to convert the Iroquois, but they're also there to just endure a really right. terrible thing. Right. And like, can you talk about that? Because that, that was that was super interesting. One of the more interesting parts of uh, the book because I was like, yeah, no, we don't really think about like religious trials in Christianity so much anymore. Right. I mean, so the Jesuit missionaries who come to New France, they could never outright say, you know, we can hope to be martyred because then that's bordering on the suicide and you can't really quite admit that. But Mm -hmm. I mean, part of the Jesuit philosophy is that you're a warrior for God and that means you suffer for God and suffering Mm -hmm. is part of kind of your earthly responsibility especially as a priest and as a representative of the Jesuit order and as a representative of the church. So going to New France, it's about conversion, but it's also in some ways about your own mortal suffering and you're, you're suffering so that they might, they being native peoples, right? In this case, so that they might go to heaven, right? Your suffering is for their benefit. And it becomes this desire for martyrdom at the same time that, you can't really admit that, and you have to see your suffering as benefiting others. Mm-hmm. Your suffering is both, they're causing it, but you're also desiring it at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so you get all of these moments when it, there's sort of very vivid accounts of usually Iroquois torture, and where part of the torture ritual is to remain as sort of steadfast as one can. And so for these Jesuit priest it becomes this site of of masculinity and proving one's masculinity in a world after the protestant reformation when catholic priests are viewed by many protestants as as less than masculine they don't have a family they don't procreate they don't have sex which are things Mm -hmm. that men do and so to prove that masculinity rather than proving it through family and being the head of a household you can prove that masculinity by being a warrior but obviously these Jesuits are not out there wielding swords. They're being a warrior through suffering through these horrific trials in New France. Mm-hmm. Well, I had a question when I was reading the the text. So the Jesuits, how much did they broadcast their suffering to their, like, uh, to other Frenchmen? Like, did, did people commonly know, like, what they were going through? Or was it something that was sort of internally... In like the Catholic, Catholic world. They did actually more commonly. It was broadcast more widely than you might think. So initially the Jesuits, the Jesuit accounts are just letters back to their superiors in, in Quebec and in, in New France. And then they're sent back to, to France itself. But people start reading them. They start circulating. They become very popular. And so they're published, many of them. And okay. there are some mentions that didn't make it into the book of, of parties that French aristocrats had to raise money to send more Jesuits or to pay for the Jesuit priests that are there. And so this narrative of suffering becomes part of the selling point, right? If we show you how terrible things are, you'll give us more money. On the one hand, it doesn't really attract a lot of settlers. So there's a tension between what France as a monarchy wants and what the Jesuits want. France wants to settle more people to build a larger colonial base in New France. And the Jesuits want more money for priests and more priests to come over so the Jesuits are willing to broadcast their suffering because it fits with their narrative of spiritual growth. Okay. But for the mm-hmm. empire, 
it doesn't really fit with their narrative of come move to New France. Sure, sure. To be. Um, yeah, I mean that that that's interesting because that that is so it's similar to the the English case where you talk about where there are these these sort of captivity narratives, but there's not this sort of idea of we're here to suffer right. as much. Yeah. You know, we're deliberately colonizing this place to you know um, you know save souls exactly. Right. I mean, in the English context. It, if we're making broad sweeping generalizations. Broad, yeah, exactly. Broad sweeping generalizations, especially in New England, they're not nearly as interested in working with Indians and saving their souls and having natives as part of their communities, right? They're praying towns, there are some efforts, but by and large, Puritan communities don't really want Indians as their next door neighbor, right? They're not living amongst Indian communities, learning indigenous languages, communicating with them. Their interests really lie in getting the Indians to go away, Whereas for the Jesuits, if they all go away, then their mission is pointless and, and there's nothing they can do. But for English colonists, their colonization involves them only, right? Spain integrates themselves into an empire that includes natives in a subordinate position, but includes them. And France does, too, to a differing degree. But England is much less interested in including natives in their colonization efforts. Exactly. Um but even so, like I mean, it it becomes uh, another story to tell because it, it is this sort of wilderness narrative too. There's sort of the, the fringes of the world, and there are you know plucky uh, um, Puritans, and it, it's interesting. Like like did did that sort of cannibal myth help the the English colonization effort by saying, okay, well now we have a mission to sort of couple ourselves with the economic aspects of empire. I mean, to some degree, yes. I mean, in some ways, it's the, right, these captivity narratives are, are not so dissimilar from Jesuit tales of suffering because it's about, look how much we're suffering for this land and how committed we are to this project. We're not giving up. It doesn't matter how terrible things get. We are here to stay. So in some ways, it, it, it drives this commitment to this land is ours and we are going to prove it at whatever costs. Um, but in terms of the empire, right, there's never from the English side this we have to go over there and save the cannibals from themselves. That never is really this driving narrative force of, of empire. Um, but it's much more about their cannibals. They don't deserve this land. So mm-hmm. we're not going to save them from themselves. We're going to take what they don't deserve. And they'll never possibly be able to use it productively, and all, all these well-worn sort of imperial narratives right. that sort of continue. Right. I thought that was a good um, place to end your monograph because it sort of sets up uh, the modern period very, very right. well. Right. There was a lot of debate about where to end it, and there was, it took it took a long time for me to convincingly argue that the end of the French and Indian War was a was a good moment to do that. But cannibalism really stops being either a catalyst or an impediment to imperial expansion to some degree after that. I mean, it's no longer a driving force pushing the Spanish farther into, you know, the Spanish borderlands in the West. It never is really a driving force in how they're rea- interacting with native peoples after that because empire has been established. It doesn't mean there mm-hmm. isn't a solidification of that, but there's no real debate about who's in charge of New England at that point, for example, or in Mexico, right, the Spanish at least in their minds, have done as much cultural assimilation as possible, and cannibalism mm-hmm. isn't driving forward 
imperial agendas there. They've just moved that perhaps elsewhere, and then we start to see that in West Africa. We start to see it then in the South Pacific, and as mm-hmm. empire expands. But once it is firmly established and the hold is there, it matters a little bit less to talk about on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, okay, well, I think maybe we should talk about what you're working on now. Okay, sure. Um, yeah, so what, what, what's your new research project? What are, what are you doing now? I have a lot of, of big ideas and, and so a lot of things going on. Um, the big project that I have in mind that I'm sure I will break up into smaller pieces um, deals really more with sexuality, kind of pulling that part, um, sexuality and power, out of this project. As much as I, I love talking about cannibals, I can't be the person who studies cannibals only for <laughs> um, So the new project that I'm working on um, – is really more the history of sexuality part of things. Um, what I'm really interested in is thinking, when we talk about the history of sexuality, we are thinking about sex acts, right? But there's rarely an acknowledgement of people who are either celibate by choice, celibate by circumstance, right? But, but sexuality is a range, and that includes people who are what we might say today are asexual or non-sexual. So I'm really interested in kind of trying to look back and think through a history of the lack of sex. So um, there's a lot of recent work in the past 10, 15 years of of LGBT history, right? Mm -hmm. People wouldn't have identified as gay, but we can still identify threads of sexualities throughout history. And so what I'm really interested in doing is looking at that other end of the spectrum, um, which is, what place was there for people to opt out of a life of sex and sexuality mm-hmm. and how that would differ in different moments in different communities? Um, obviously, there's a fair amount of work done about religious orders, right? Those who would take vows mm-hmm. of celibacy. But what I'm more interested in is unmarried women who have always sort of been seen in colonial North America as threatening, as lacking a place in society, and what choice women had to refuse sex, to refuse sexuality without taking a religious vow. And for men, right, there's a lot of literature about bachelorhood, when it, moments in time when it's either condemned or seen as the pinnacle of male existence. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenges obviously are, are many, one of which just because someone isn't married doesn't mean they're celibate. So how do you mm-hmm. try to work on that line? So I'm starting with... Um, a woman named Margaret Brent, who was a colonist, one of the earliest colonists in Maryland in the 1630s and 40s. And Margaret Brent um, is quite a famous woman. She's sort of the most famous colonial um, settler, and she is unmarried. She's never married. She moves to Maryland in her 30s with her brother and sister, and she becomes very wealthy. She becomes the executor of the Calvert's estate when Leonard Calvert dies. She and Leonard Calvert adopt a young Indian woman as their ward together, but they're not married. He's married to someone else. And she becomes a really rich and wealthy landowner. And she's Mm -hmm. most famous for being the first woman in the colonies to ask for her right to vote, which she is promptly denied. Uh, And so there are these interesting, like, feminist lawyer awards named for Margaret Brent. Uh, Um, But she's not asking for women's right to vote. She's asking for her right to vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because she has subjectivity now because she has money. Right, it's a, a landowner <laughs> and is the executor of Leonard Calvert's estate, not womanhood. She mm-hmm. marries exactly. off her like 11-year-old Indian ward to her brother, who's 
least in his late thirties. So, right. She's not necessarily opposed to marriage because she's willing to use her young native ward as kind of a pawn in a political game. And so I'm looking at the way people have talked about Margaret Brent and, and a lot of scholars who have talked about her assume that she's obviously taken some lay orders. She's, t- she's Catholic. So she's decided to take some order, enter some lay order of celibacy. And that's why she never marries. And I think that just seems like a really easy way to just explain it. But there's no evidence for that. We have that's just purely mm-hmm. speculative. And there's not a lot of acknowledgement that not marrying is a very practical decision. It's a pragmatic decision for her, because if she were to marry, all of the land that she's accumulated would become the property of her husband. Sure. So who might not be reliable or he might ruin it or whatever. Just and if she died, she had no real control over where it went or who it goes mm-hmm. to. And so couldn't and her sister Mary doesn't marry either. So why these two women are able to remain unmarried in a time and place when there are far fewer women than there are men, how that affects their power. And I'm also really interested in her relationship with her Indian ward. His name is Mary Kit McLund, who's the daughter of the Piscataway chief. She's a very Pocahontas like figure in this respect. She's kind of married off to Giles Brent. Um, so it's a nice place to start of a woman who's famous for being single, wealthy, and important. Mm-hmm. And there have used to be some speculation that at one point she was going to get married, but her suitor died. Um, but I, I was at the archives this summer, and that, that was a different Margaret Brent. So there's oh. no evidence that <laughs> she was ever going to get married. So I'm taking really kind of the thread about sexuality, and I'm interested in sex and power. And the mm-hmm. lack of sex and what that does to one's power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what what kind of agency you can get from making that deliberate right. decision, or not legally codifying your sexuality or right, or, right. You're not mm-hmm. going to find someone who identifies as asexual or who says I'm choosing not to do this for X reasons. But obviously, sex is enormously powerful as a social a tool of social control, and so mm-hmm. can one achieve power through denying that or how does it differ for men and for women? I mean, in Native communities, periods of celibacy were quite common before warriors would set out for the Iroquois in particular. There would be a period of mandated celibacy because sex mm. was seen as something that diminishes your power, right, that sure. take from you. So the kind of meanings of celibacy and sex um, and the various degrees to which that can be an empowering and disempowering choice. Okay. Very interesting. Very different, uh, but they're, they're threads. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I see, I see um, the connection there for sure. Um, Kelly, thank you. <laughs> no problem.